Well, good morning again. It's uh, a day that has been marked, or this week's been marked by another loss for the evangelical community. Some of you who follow theology may know that uh, J.I. Packer passed away this week, and uh, he has been a stalwart in the Christian community for the last 60, 70, 80 years, 70 years possibly. And only a few weeks before that, we lost Ravi Zacharias. And it just seems like some of the stalwarts that we have followed and that have kept us steady for a little while, God has called home. I thank the Lord, though, that when God calls people home, he raises other people up. And we look forward to seeing who that will be that God will raise up to serve this next generation uh, as he takes home some of that older generation. A couple things to just drop by your way, by way of information. One, something that may help us. Um, I am beginning to refer to the church as the invisible church now because we don't see you very often. We would cross paths very often on a Sunday, but we don't see that very often anymore. But we know that you're watching on live stream, but we don't know who you are. Um, and we don't know how many are watching. So this week, I want to throw something your way to maybe think about. If you have a second and you're sitting down at your computer, just send a note to our office, the office at parksvillebaptist.org, and say, yeah, we watched this Sunday and there were five watching with us. And maybe where you live. And just gives us a little bit of idea uh, who's watching, uh, and um, it will be helpful for us. Uh, secondly, uh, on August the 17th, we are planning our AGM for Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. And so um, you will get some information if you're on our membership list via email uh, by the July the 28th. And it will be an online AGM, and there'll be more information coming to you. But we just want to get you ready for that uh, so that when you get that email, it's not a shock. Uh, and then finally, uh, each month we evaluate what we're doing as far as the services are concerned. And as we look ahead to August, we're going to make some changes. Uh, the changes are this way. First of all, uh, in August, for the five Sundays of August, we will do a live stream service where you can register and come and be part of at 11 o'clock like we've been doing for the last uh, two months. But what we're going to do is we're going to return to our thirsty service on Sunday nights here at the church at 6 p.m., and uh, it will be a completely live service. It won't be broadcast, but uh, you can sign up for that service. And uh, we will do the same uh, service that we do on live stream, uh, same service. Uh, and uh, that will be for the five Sundays of um, August as well. And then rather than doing communion uh, every Sunday at 2 o'clock, we're going to switch that up and offer communion twice during August on the 9th and on the 23rd at 9 a.m. in the morning. Uh, we'll have that information posted for you, but we just wanted to let you know of some of the changes that we're making so that we can uh, seem to accommodate the, the needs and the desires that we see of those who want to attend the various services. All that being said, we turn back now to uh, the Word of God, and uh, this is the uh, sixth of one more message on stewardship and giving and uh, ownership and wealth and possessions. And uh, the last week, we started to focus a little bit more specifically on this notion of stewardship. It's still not a word that is really common in our language today, either as a general concept or even as a biblical framework through which to um, work out our response to our wealth and our possessions. Um, as we think about it, we need to remember that stewardship is not just about our money. Stewardship, as we noticed a couple weeks ago, has a much broader context. And the fact that as stewards, you and I are stewards not only of our wealth and possessions, but we're also stewards of our physical bodies. We're stewards of the world in which we live. And we're stewards because we don't own anything. We simply manage those things. 
God owns everything, and he owns everything by virtue of the fact that he created everything. And so we've been zeroing in on this reality to try and remind ourselves again and again as we think about our wealth and possessions that it is not ours to do with as we want. We are simply managers of the things that God has given to us to look after for him. And sort of the proof of that reality is found, I think, in Timothy where Paul reminds us of the words even of Job where Job says, Naked I came into the world and naked I will leave the world. I brought nothing into the world. I will take nothing out of the world. That is the boundary of our relationship with wealth and possessions. And that should show us that we don't own anything. So we've zeroed down, though, a little bit on stewardship from those broad concepts to think about particularly giving or generosity. And as we remember that all that we have in our bank accounts, that all that we have on title deeds, that all that we have in our garages actually belongs to God and has been given to us by God. It was last week that we touched on the notion of, well, how do we steward that in the sense of giving stuff back or being generous with our wealth and possessions? And we realized that the standard for New Testament giving is not tithing. The tithing was an Old Testament standard that was set for the people of God in the theocracy of Israel. Rather, the standard of giving in the New Testament has been set for us by Jesus, and it's captured really in two um, words or, or sentences that Jesus spoke to the people. Uh, the first is simply this one in Luke chapter 6. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And then the second word of Jesus is found in Acts, where Paul is uh, speaking to a group of people, and he says, In every way, I have shown you that by laboring like this, it is necessary to help the weak and to keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus. For he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The standard of giving in the New Testament is generosity. The standard of giving is as God has provided for us. And we find patterns of that, what Jesus said, worked out in one place in particular in the writing of Paul as he's corresponding with the Corinthian believers about how they are to respond to a particular need that has, been, that has arisen. And the things that Paul says to them are the things that he has taught other churches, particularly the churches in Macedonia. And so these aren't just one-off um, principles or patterns for giving. They're things that Paul taught the church for all time that should shape our stewardship of our wealth and our possessions. Last week, we focused specifically on 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. And there we really zeroed in on verse 2, and where Paul spoke to us about giving, which is to be systematically thoughtful, universally embraced, intentionally directed, and proportionally determined. Or alternative, he, alternatively, he addressed the question to us, when should we give? And who should give? And how should we give? And how much should we give? And so now he's coming back to these same sort of realities and the same need as he writes again to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're only going to consider one of the examples because I know we're going to run out of time. And so we're going to focus on the first eight verses this morning. 
And the thing that I want you to realize as we dive into this again is that Paul's tone is a very helpful tone. In fact, he says as he begins writing to them in verse 8, he says, I say this not by way of command. And then in verse 10, he says, I give you my judgment. And it's a reminder that just as he did in the text of last week, God could have very easily have directed Paul to give a specific proportion or amount in mind. But Paul says, no, I leave that up to you and God. What I want to see develop in your heart as a child of God is a generous heart. And it's up to you and God what that generosity looks like when you are confronted with various needs in the world in which you live. And so Paul is really wanting to talk about our hearts. And he's wanting to talk about our response to the grace of God received. And what that response looks like as we then are generous towards other people. One of the things I think we find is that as Christians, and even as people, we're not naturally generous. We need to be shown how to be generous. We need to be taught how to be generous. And in the current days in which we're living with so much need and so much um, a difficulty, not only in our communions and around the world, we really need to think about generosity. But Paul dives into two examples of generosity that should shape our own cultivating and learning about generosity. The first, and it's the only one we'll get at today, is the example of the Macedonian Christians. And Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 8. He says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. So we're coming back to the churches in Macedonia. These would have been Christians that would have uh, been in the Thessalonica church or the church in Thessalonia. It would have been uh, those that were members of the church in Berea and those who were members of the churches in Philippi. These were Greek Christians that have come to know the Lord. And so Paul is using their example of giving to teach us what it means to be generous. And so he begins by simply talking about the headwaters of giving. The headwaters of biblical giving. In other words, where does biblical giving come from? He says the headwaters of biblical giving is the grace of God. That's where biblical giving begins. It begins with God and our experience of his grace poured out into our lives. Of his overflowing mercy towards us of his generosity towards us who were incredible deep need and God lavishly met that need. The Bible always begins by showing us God's generosity to us in the gospel. And then, as we have been saving over and over again, the gospel that God has so freely and generously given us then changes everything. And the reality is that God is a giving God. And that changes everything in our perspective. And so Paul says, we, I want you to know or to see the grace of God that was evident in the Macedonians. We just spent some time as a congregation in the book of James. And one of the things that James brought out was that there are genuine Christians, and then those who are, there are those who sit on the fence or who play with Christianity, but the gospel has never transformed them. And so James told us again and again of marks of genuine Christianity. 
marks that were seen or evident in people's lives. For example, he talked about the way that we handle trials and tests in our life, the way that we face temptation, the way that we talk and how we use our tongues, the expression of the fact that our faith is also demonstrated in works or in visible things that could be seen, about how we think about the future, about our concern for those who are less fortunate. And so what James told us was that gospel transforms us. And that transformation is seen in our behaviors and in the way that we act and the way that we think. And so what Paul is saying is the very same thing here. Is that the reception of the grace of God in salvation, the reception of the gospel of God in the transformation of our life, should turn us into generous people as God is generous towards us. And so here Paul is showing the Christians in Corinth evidence of what saving faith looks like or of what the gospel looks like with the example of the Macedonians and their response in giving to the need of the Christians in Jerusalem. Remember, we've been talking about this. When when John the Baptist was um, uh, confronted with people that were coming to him to be baptized, He said to a group of people, he says, well, listen, I want you to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And remember, we we pointed out that one of the key evidences of repentance was a different view of wealth and possessions. And so John the Baptist says to various people as they come their way, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the crowds asked him, well, then what should we do? What should that fruit look like? What should repentance look like in our lives? And he answered them, and he says, well, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers came to him and said, and what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. What John is saying is that salvation begins to change and transform our attitude to our wealth and possessions and those in need around us. You can read of the conversion of Zacchaeus, who at the moment that Christ came into his life in a personal way, he just became a generous man his whole view of his resources changed and so Paul is saying listen evidence of the grace of God and salvation is a transformation in our view of our resources that God has given us and the needs around us so the headwaters of biblical giving the source of a generous heart is first and foremost a transformed heart Because we have received the gracious, generous provision of God for our need. Then how can we be miserly and close our hands to the needs of those that are around us? The second thing that we see in 2 Corinthians is the unrestrained nature of biblical giving. It's fascinating when you work through verse 2 of chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians, you realize that they're giving was unhindered by personal circumstance. It would be certainly understandable why one's personal circumstances could be a check on their generosity. We might even say that there would be times in which our personal circumstances 
could be seen as a valid reason for not giving to a legitimate need that we've become aware of. And you see, Jesus watched people one day giving. He sat in the temple and he was watching people as they came to give their offerings. And he observed how many were giving vast sums of money, but he noted that it was only their excess. They had extra and they were giving that extra. But then he watched one particular elderly lady who came by and dropped in two small copper coins into the treasury. It was all that she had, everything that she had. And we may ask ourselves then, do our personal circumstances determine our generosity? See, we might say, well, 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 well I'm going through a severe period of trial. And in fact, I'm undergoing affliction right now. And that gives me a legitimate reason to self-focus. And let's not downplay that when Paul talks about the Macedonians in verse 2 who are going through a severe test and affliction. He was talking about an extreme circumstance in their life. And you can read in the book of Acts how they were persecuted. And when they were persecuted, it would often mean they lost their jobs. They lost their trade. They were kicked out of the family. They had no place to live. The, the, the impoverishment that came through their severe affliction was incredible. And at the very least then, we might say, well, my severe affliction... My difficulties makes it hard for me to look at the needs of anyone else right now. I just need to zero in on myself. And we say, what about COVID? COVID is affecting many of us in various ways. Some of us very, very hard. Some of the difficulties are extreme. How does that impact our generosity towards others who are in need? We might say, well, I'm experiencing deep poverty. Not just poverty, Paul says, but deep poverty. Down to the depths poverty. The kind that realizes I'm at the very end of my resources. Well, we might say, well, that then should check my giving. And my generosity should at least be checked by my deep poverty. But what does Paul say? Notice what he says in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. An abundance of joy. They had learnt that it was more blessed to give to, than, than it was to receive. And they were overflowing with joy at the opportunity, even in their severe affliction and their deep poverty, to do what they could to alleviate the needs of others. They were overflowing with a wealth of generosity. And you might say, well, that's not normal. And I would agree. But I would say that's evidence of having received the generosity of God. I would say that's evidence of having learned to trust God, that I can never outgive him. I would say that's not normal, but it is normal to trust a God who says, I will supply all of your needs according to my riches in glory. As one commentator wrote, devout Christians do not wait until they have more money. They give despite their poverty, like the poor widow. 
As Jesus said in Luke 16.10, Who is faithful in very little will be faithful in much. And who is unrighteous in a very little is unrighteous also in much. And so I think what Paul is getting at is that giving is not a matter of how much one possesses. But rather, it's an expression of an unselfish and a loving heart. So as Paul would say here, as he looks at the example of the Macedonians to teach the Corinthians how to give, he would say, personal circumstances do not need to stand in the way of biblical giving. Even in the most difficult circumstance, we shouldn't, first of all, close our hands towards the needs of others. Paul is saying simply, we can be generous in good times and we can be generous in difficult times. I wonder if there's times when, when we're confronted with a need and it might be we're in severe affliction and maybe in deep poverty. And there are times like that then we ought to think about God's word that he spoke to Israel in the book of Malachi when they had with, been withholding giving for various reasons. And do you remember what God's words were to them? Put me to the test. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you without measure. Which comes back to what Jesus says, which we read a little bit earlier. You see, the, the gratitude of the Macedonian Christians for having received the grace of God was working itself out in father-like generosity toward the saints in Jerusalem. And it's a wonderful thing when we learn to give in all circumstances to a need that God brings to our attention. Our generosity always rebounds back to God and never to us. For Paul says in, uh, later in chapter 9, you will be enriched in every way for your generosity which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is the key, I think, in generosity. Whenever we give, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But as you learn to give, what is so amazing is that as you give, and all of a sudden people give praise and glory to God, you say, that's why I give. So that people who are uh, receivers of the generosity that I am able to provide because God has been generous, generous to me, don't turn to me and say thank you. They turn to God and say thank you God for providing for my needs. When you and I are generous, God gets the glory. When you give to a need, even out of difficult circumstances, God is worshipped and praised. And that's how it really should be. And so we find that personal circumstances ought not to be a hindrance to biblical giving. So biblical giving begins with having received the grace of God. Biblical giving is not restricted by how much we have or the circumstances of our life. Thirdly, what does Paul say about the scaffolding of biblical giving? What is it that we build up in our lives so that we learn the habit and the discipline of generosity? Well, verse 3 in chapter 8 is absolutely critical, as, as are the, the next couple verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I thought of using the phrase uh, skeleton for biblical giving because these are the principles on which all the flesh and blood, so to speak, of giving find support. We say, well, what kind of attitudes 
are cultivated that encourage biblical generosity? Well, the first one is simply a willingness. I think what Paul says in verse 3 is so helpful. They gave according to their own means, as I can test beyond their own means, of their own accord. We could use more of this in Christian circles. No arm twisting. No guilt trips. No prid quo pro quo. I can't even say that. You know what I'm talking about. Quid pro quo promises. There we go. You just can't say it fast. It's simply, here's a need. And then leave it with God's people to allow God to stir their heart to give. But don't beat them over the head. Don't give them thermometers. Don't give them um, uh, percentages. Just say, here's the need. Now meet it. Because I believe true biblical giving flows from a generous heart, not an obligated heart. And isn't that the gospel? God didn't twist Jesus' arm to come for us. God didn't manipulate Jesus emotionally and said, Jesus, you know, if, if you do this, this will, we'll, we'll get this in response. God simply presented the plan of salvation to Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm the man. I will go and do it. I will meet that need. And it's simply what we see in Jesus' response to the need set before him that we learn how to have generous responses. And so I appreciate that reminder that biblical giving begins with a willing heart. But it's also proportional. We've already talked about this last week, but he says they gave according to their means. That is really giving according to their ability, according to their capacity. The Macedonians hadn't prospered and then given from their surplus. Instead, they simply gave out of their poverty. They, they gave what little they had. They gave what God had blessed them with. Uh, but they, they, they gave out of that. They gave even what they thought was wise and what was necessary. Paul didn't set before them a specific amount or, or, or a percentage. To have done that would have erased proportionate giving. Rather, he, he simply says they gave willingly as they had means. And I believe that's how God wants you and I to respond to needs. Not by what that person does or what that person does, but simply what God stirs your heart to do according to how God has blessed you, specifically how he has prospered you. But there's an aspect of biblical giving which Paul touches on here, which I think the Macedonians demonstrated for us, and that was they gave sacrificially. He says, they gave beyond their means. I don't see this to mean that they gave what they didn't have. And I don't believe that we should understand this to say, I should go into debt to giving. Rather, how I understand this is they gave out of their poverty. Or even as the, 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 the woman that Jesus mentioned she gave everything that she had. In 2 Corinthians 8, 12, it says it is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one don't, doesn't have. I remember hearing a definition of sacri sacrificial giving years ago, and I, I think it's helpful. I think it helps frame what 
Paul might be saying here when he says they gave according to their means and beyond their means. And I think it was Alistair Begg that said this. They were willing to forgo a legitimate want in order to meet a legitimate need. They were willing to endure the squeeze to help another out of a pinch. I think that's what sacrificial giving is. It's a willingness to forgo a legitimate want, something that I've been saving for a while, something that I would really like. And all of a sudden, a need comes up, and rather than buy what I want or get what I want, I take that money and I give that towards that need. As David said, and Rick read from 2 Samuel chapter 24, David said, I will not give what costs me nothing. And so there's sacrificial giving that I think is behind a generous heart. And then I I think we ought to look at giving as a privilege. I don't know if you think of it that way. But notice again what Paul says. They begged us earnestly for the favor or the privilege. It's not really an easy phrase to translate. It's along the lines they they simply begged him. They urgently pleaded with him. Or they begged us again and again. Or they clamored. They, they, they fell in behind me when I came and said, Paul, how can we help? Paul, there's a need. We want to get involved. Paul, what do we do? Paul, how do we get it together? Paul, how do we get this need to the saints in Jerusalem? It wasn't excuses. It was generosity. Their hearts just were filled with affection and love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. That they just gave. And another clue that we have that the giving wasn't rooted in coercion. Is that it would seem that Paul might have said to them enough. How can you afford to give any more? But he says no they begged for the privilege of being able to participate. What a reversal isn't it? Normal when, normally when there's fundraising campaigns or needs that are presented, we expect the person soliciting funds to come and ask us for support. To come and say, well, this is the need, and, and then, you know, this is how you got to meet it. This is flipped the other way around. These people are begging for an opportunity to support the need. And then they gave beyond expectations. Paul says they gave not as we expected which seems to indicate that they gave far above anything Paul thought possible. It's natural to look at circumstances and sometimes form expectations. Maybe Paul was saying, I fell into this trap. I I knew the the Macedonian Christians. I knew what they were suffering. I knew their poverty. And and I kind of said, well, you know, if they can give a little bit, that would be great. But he says, it blew his expectations out of the water. And then finally, and this could really be first, He says, they first gave themselves to God, and then they gave themselves to us. See, I think that's where generous giving begins. It doesn't begin with the need. It begins by giving yourself wholly and wholeheartedly to God. To present yourselves, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's what Pastor Barry reminded us a couple weeks ago. That upstream from a generous response to a need is a heart that is desirous of delighting in God. 
And as we delight in God, as we come to know God, as we come to appreciate God, as we come to have a personal relationship with God, as we come to to see His power, His might, His generosity, His character, as that happens, then out of that flows our generosity to needs around us. As I've said a couple times already, God doesn't want your money. In fact, God doesn't even need your money. He gave it all to you. But what God wants is to cultivate within you his heart, his desire to be generous and to meet the needs of those that are around you. And finally, the pursuit of biblical giving. In verse 7, Paul says to these Christians in Corinth, and he says, as you excel in everything, and they were a congregation that was just soaking up the things of God, and they were growing in so many ways. And he says, as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech and in knowledge and in all earnestness and in our love for you, see to it that you excel in this act of grace also. I think what Paul is saying there is that we never reach the pinnacle of generosity in our lives. There's never a time, I think, when we can all, any of us, sit back and say, I think I'm as generous as I can be. I I think I've learned the art of generosity perfectly. I think what he's saying is, no, excel in it. That take what you learn from being generous in this situation and now apply it in a different way in this situation. If you trusted God with this much in this situation, now trust God with this much in that situation. Learn to even trust God more, to rely on God more. And I think that's helpful because sometimes we can just get in a habit of giving or generosity where we never think anymore about needs or we never think anymore about our giving. But I think Paul is reminding us here that giving and generosity is a learned response and that we never learn it well enough that we can say that we've arrived. And so those are the patterns that Paul lays out. But then he gives a test. It's a fascinating test. He says, I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm testing how genuine your love is. I don't know if we like tests. And this is a, a I don't know, it, it's, it's a fascinating one. He says, I'm, I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. You see, what Paul was, had seen is that he saw in the Macedonians, their love for other brothers and sisters in Christ is what drove their generosity. They just love them that it pained them to see their brothers and sisters in Christ in need or in want. And it was their love that motivated them to be so generous with what God had given to them. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, Paul describes the various ways that we can give. And in the very last one, he says, if I donate all that I have to feed the poor, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. In Matthew 25, 33 to 36, Paul, or Jesus, is talking about the final judgment when we will stand before him. 
and, and there will be the sheep and the goats, and, and he'll speak to the sheep, which are followers of Christ, and he'll speak to them about their care and their love for other brothers and sisters in Christ. The little ones, that's who the little ones are in Matthew 25. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. And he will talk to them about their care to them. And he will say, uh, say to the sheep, he says, you fed the hungry. And you gave water to the thirsty, and you housed the one that had nowhere to go, and you clothed the naked, and you cared for the sick, and you visited the imprisoned. In other words, the sheep love the others through those actions. What about 1 John 3, 16 to 18? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anybody has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, Yet closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's love that motivates generosity. And it's not a love that I said that comes from. It's exotic to us. We love because God first loved us. And Christina read from John 3.16 a little bit earlier. Is this not it? For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In Romans chapter 8.32 we read there of God's act again of giving his son. He says he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us. How will he not then graciously give us all things? See, God's giving to us was motivated by his deep, deep love for us. And out of that love for us, he sent Jesus to meet our deepest need. I thank the Lord that my father is a generous father. I thank the Lord that my first experience of generosity was in receiving Jesus Christ who came and dealt with my greatest need that out of his poverty or out of his riches he became poor so that I might absorb his riches and become rich. God is a giving God and you and I should be grateful that he is. It all begins with the grace of God and our gratitude to having received that grace, which, in then is, which then is turned into generosity to those around us who God brings in our path, who are in need, so that we can use the wealth and possessions that he has given us to steward to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters and the world around us. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the reminder that we are to be a generous people. And there is no guideline or boundary to our generosity that we, in the end of the day, are to do our best to imitate you in generosity towards others. So, Father, once again this week, as we consider the resources that you have given us, the wealth and possessions that we have control and oversight over that you have given us to steward, I pray that we would examine our stewardship maybe in a fresh 
light, or once again in the light of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and, and the way that the Macedonians demonstrated stewardship and demonstrated generosity, and may their example help us as we strive to excel even more in being generous to those around us. Thank you, Father, for richly supplying our needs. Thank you, Father, for generously and lavishly pouring out grace in our lives so that we might come to be your sons and daughters. Oh, Father, may you teach us to love even more the family of God and those who are yet to be part of that family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.